Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in breaking into the coffee industry, whether roasting, producing, marketing or sales or whatever it is, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a consultant who works with roasters, retailers and producers to help them all improve their marketing and sales programs. But before I introduce you to Tracy Allen, one of the original members of the U.S. Barista Championship Committee, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tracy Allen, the founder and CEO of Brood Behavior, a consulting company founded about 12 years ago to offer comprehensive product quality and business support to all segments of the coffee industry. Brew Behavior primarily works with coffee roasters and producing countries to improve their marketing efforts and their sales programs. And their approach to coffee consulting involves changing behaviors through education and providing strategy and growth solutions at every touchpoint. Tracy grew up in a Midwest farming community, and he financed his own college education by working in retail management. After graduating from college, he was recruited by Procter & Gamble to take on the newly created position of beverage specialist. P&G put Tracy on the team responsible for developing the Folgers Coffee and Millstone brands. He went on to manage operations for a small Midwest specialty coffee roaster, which led him to co-found Zoka Coffee Roaster and Tea Company in Seattle, Washington, where Tracy launched and grew the company's wholesale division. As one of the original members of the U.S. Barista Championship Committee and the first chair of the Rules and Regulations Committee for the World Barista Championship, Tracy has trained multiple national and regional barista champions and served as a judge and a judge's trainer for the USBC and the WBC. That's the World Barista Championship, by the way. He's also an SCAA Super Taster, which is the Specialty Coffee Association, I believe, Super Taster. He's a certified cupper and a Q grader instructor. 
Tracy, welcome to Time for Coffee. I want to ask you, how caffeinated are you? <laughs> and are you ready to go? Good morning. I am. I'm just right. I'm about 120 milligrams in for the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Now, only a specialty coffee guy would or gal would answer that way. Right. Yeah. A little fun. I'm most of the way through my first cup, to be honest. I'm on your time zone, I think. And I'm about where I need to be. I think we're going to have a great conversation and, and I'm not over caffeinated and not under caffeinated. I think we're at a good sweet spot. Oh, wonderful. Well, I am still working on my first cup as well. I tend to just kind of keep adding coffee to that first pour. Oh, yeah. And as it gets cold, I keep adding more. I need to get some advice from you, Tracy, because I know I'm probably not doing myself any favors because I use a French press and I let the coffee continue to marinate in that French little, press. little extraction possibly, but if it doesn't taste bad to you, then it works. Yeah. There's a lot of elitism in my industry, but the truth is you're still improving lives at origin and you're still drinking something that you like. And as long as you like it, that's what matters. Oh gosh, you just made me feel wonderful right there. Thank you so much. And mm -hmm. I love learning about this industry for obvious reasons, but also because I just love coffee. I just love it. It's easy to love, isn't it? And it's a, <laughs> such a labor of love for the producers. And when you get to share in their journey, the more you know about it, like you say, you love learning too. The more you know about it, the more engaged you are. And then you make that connection for life. And it's unlike anything else that you can just go buy in a can off the shelf or a bottle or something like that, because it's got real depth to it and impacts people's lives. And it tastes great. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, just last week, in fact, I interviewed the founder of Gold Mountain Coffee Growers, Ben Weiner, and he started his social enterprise in Nicaragua to help the growers there. And he said to me, after he kind of talked through all the different parts, he said, coffee should be so much more expensive than what it is. I mean, we all or many of us have reacted, had kind of sticker shock when we go to our specialty coffee shops and get a cup of coffee and it's $3, $4, depending upon what kind you get. It can be $6 or $7. But yeah. when you know what has gone into the actual production, you're surprised it isn't even more. It's true. And I think one of the things that we do is help set pricing for the producers. And so the question is, what's a fair wage? Because currently, if you're selling through the commodity market, that price is set for you in places like Brazil or even New York. And what we do is we break down their cost of production and then settle on a wage, what we call a living wage from that cost of production up. So it becomes the floor. So that's the minimum, right? Because that's how I learned. That's how farmers work in the States. Anecdotally, not to call anybody out, but we, you know, in my Procter & Gamble days, they launched the Keurig and Keurig's had great success and people love the convenience of a Keurig. But if you ever did the math on a cup of coffee, it's about $55 a pound. <laughs> so, oh, wow. really a, yeah. So it's really a matter of, this is me using my economics degree and, and I apologize, but at the same time, it's people will pay for what they think it's worth at the time. And they like to have convenience. They like to have a choice each day, those kinds of things. So not everybody wants to put the work into it like you do and make that French press, but 
probably on the weekends, you'll see more of that kind of stuff that goes into it. And people really appreciate the value of the coffee. And I think a lot of growth in our industry has been mail order and people are buying their mail order coffee now, especially during the quarantine. And they're having more of it at home because they have time. Yeah. So you're seeing a huge spike in the industry with that direct to consumer business. Excellent. Well, I want to talk with you about the trends that are happening now in the yeah. specialty coffee industry in our main time for coffee interview, unless you think it's relevant in this Espresso Shots episode. And by the way, our listeners should check out show notes to see if Tracy's main time for coffee interview in which we get into his whole career and what he does at brood behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Check to see if that episode is already dropped. So, for right now with the espresso shots, we are going to frame mm-hmm. these, Tracy, around the coffee consulting at every link in the chain. And yeah. the first espresso shot is what entry level jobs are available to young people who want to break into this industry? So a lot of what we position ourselves as is sort of a bit of a think tank and in the way that we'll get a lot of young people that love coffee. That's all they know. I just love coffee. And they, they not, they're not even sure that they can make a career in it. And then it turns out to be one bit. And I think my advice a lot of times is, and, and give credit to places like Starbucks that will allow you to come on and be a barista and make a fair wage, but also have some benefits and those kinds of things. So a lot of what you learn about how much you really love or don't love the industry, you can find out right there on the front lines on the retail side as a barista. And then we've had pride of our, we'll kind of pride ourselves on the success of uh, teaching people to fish, if you will. And that's take a barista and the barista's like, I think I want to start a coffee shop and we'll often bring them in. And it's just uh, redundant hard work and teach them the things that they don't know, like how to roast and how to actually cup and, and assess coffees and stay on the same baseline so that we can continue to create the common language to give the feedback to the end user and the producer. And so hard work, ability to endure redundancies time and time again, and then a little creativeness. You know, some of our best roasters come from the sensory world and, and the time right now that you and I both know a lot of restaurants are struggling and things like that. Sensory people do really well at the roaster coincidentally. And so we're seeing more of that, those kinds of things going on. But just anything, if you're passionate about it, that will get you out of bed to go to work on time, which is a basic, but it's not (laughs) on time and put a full day in and love what you do. And and if not, then it's probably not your passion, but it's kind of cool to learn about. And we also get a lot of musicians, coincidentally. Oh, Um, really? Yeah, they're wired similar. A lot of roasters are also musicians. There's actually a side of our industry that's made up of all music-minded coffee people. And it's kind of fun to see them in that that light, too. But I think it's a lot of worrying. And math, music, science, hard work, all that goes into it. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. You know, you mentioned sensory people do really well. What is your Uh definition of someone who is sensory? You know, in the last five or so years since the TV chefs have become famous and the chefs really start getting credit for the work they've done with with very little appreciation for so many years. And now they've come to the front line. People describe themselves as foodies a lot. And if you're someone that can just stop and appreciate the way things taste, I would say that you are capable of. And there's two parts to teaching someone how to 
brew coffee or roast coffee or whatever it is, you have to understand the feedback that the coffee gives you when you brew it in the cup. And you have to be able to articulate that on some type of benchmarking system, a score sheet we use. We use a scoring app so that we can give numbers to things, assign numbers to things. And so you have to have basic considerations like acidity, understanding how acidity works and understanding how body works in flavor and aftertaste and, and balance and those kind of things. And a lot of times that's there's so much overlap in the in the industries. Sensory people can just put something in their mouth and assess it or smell it and assess it. It's a, it's sort of a wiring thing. It's like either you just eat for utility or you enjoy the journey. And if mm. you enjoy the journey, you a pretty good chance that you're going to sit down with a cup of coffee, which is going to take you, let's say, 15 to 30 minutes. And, and in Europe, obviously, it's more espresso, so it's about 15 minutes. But really pay attention to what goes on in there. And if you have an appreciation for that, I think that categorizes you as, as at least a sensory type person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what I was referring to. Great. Great. Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave this question yet about the entry level jobs that are available to young people who want to break into coffee consulting, because I don't sure. think many of them would be surprised about the barista route. What are yeah. some other entry level jobs at other steps at other links in the value chain? Well, we were talking about your friend in Nicaragua, but we also do the reverse. We take young people from producing countries who want to better serve their family business or their country or whatever the drive is. And we bring them to our campus and we help them learn everything that we do so they can be better and put out a better quality product. And when they go back to origin. So I think, you know, there's always small roasters, for instance, in the States, there's always small roasters that are looking for basic production people. And that's always a foot in the door. And you know how this works. It's really get in there and prove that you're willing to do the jobs that are entry level and endure and they'll be turnover and you'll be recognized for time served or the work above and beyond. But they're really just assessing your work ethic. I mean, bagging coffee, unloading trucks, cleaning up the warehouse, that kind of stuff. It's just like working in the kitchen at a restaurant, right? Like those jobs, you don't just walk in and be the sous chef. There's a lot of things that, that lead up to it. And there is even dishwashing. So you don't have to be overqualified. You just have to be very committed to what you think is your passion. Mm-hmm. And the roasters nowadays, like I said, a lot of chefs and things now, we're getting more inquiries about education from the story is I, I've been a chef all my life and now's the time I want to break away and do my own business. So there's a lot of those, let's say, sensory type people, not just chefs that are getting into it and they just need someone extra to, to do the other stuff because they're out. That type of person is going to be out being their salesperson and their business manager and all that stuff. And they need someone to do the day to day stuff. So I think there's great opportunity right now. And like I said, we try to do both ends of it. We try to bring the producing countries here to learn what we do. And then we, we take our staff to the producing countries and teach them too. But it all boils down to work ethic. You know? Yeah, we're I mean, going to get into that. Time, we're going to get into that in the next question. But yeah. actually, I want to ask you, Tracy, are there job boards or websites that our young listeners could go to to find some of these jobs in different roasteries or maybe even in producing countries or manufacture yeah. something like that. The real go-to in our industry is you mentioned 
a future interview that you have coming up, but Spredge does a great job of the job board and you just Google Spredge, S-P-R-U-D-G-E. And one of the first things that will come up under Spredge is their, their job board. They have sort of made themselves the go-to. And then of course, local one ads, a lot of times it might say something as small as just wanted production help or labor or whatever. And you, you kind of got to glean through it. But, but if you want to get with people that are up and running, Spredge is really probably got the market on that one. Great. We'll put a link to it in show notes. Okay. So Tracy, what is a useful hard and soft skill that you look mm-hmm. for in the young people that you hire? We could go down a whole another wormhole about interviews and how people can interview well. But a lot of what I've learned is just body language and, and those kinds of things. And then eye contact and confidence and what they're saying comes usually comes from experience. You know, if you're not very confident in your first job interview, it's just there's nothing wrong with that. It's just because you haven't had any experience. But the more experience you have, you're like, hey, I'm interviewing for this job because I feel like I can do it based on my experience. So a lot of that we pay attention to the minute they come in the door. But I think just their ability to keep a job like, hey, what happened here and here on the resume when there's a spot in between jobs, you know, a a distance. I know that sounds like common sense because we've talked about it for years, but it still happens where people just have a, a little lapse in there. But their ability to take on a lot of times we'll look at those jobs in order and see that they've taken on a little more each time that they've changed jobs. And that's important. Managing people is is a something that people look forward to. And but even in you know, like maybe, the entry level jobs, so for those young people right out of college, what would you say realistically are the kind of hard skills sure. and soft skills that you think they need to be honing right now while they're in school, in their extracurriculars or in yeah. their classwork, what do you think are going to be the most important ones for them to have in this industry? From a college level, I, I think, you know, not a lot of them are going to go straight into production, to be honest with you. They're probably going to go into something more like sales or something on the next level up. So let's elevate that answer to the written and just general communication skills that people told us when we were in college that we would need <laughs> and math. Frankly, there's nothing in this business that we don't do that it, that it is going to require some math. I mean, we measure things out in everything that we do. In our industry, we convert everything from green coffee comes in in kilos. And in the States, we convert it to pounds or ounces, you know, so or grams or milligrams. I mean, there's a lot of that that goes on there. So those are great things to be caught up on. The roaster's path is, I mean, it sounds so fascinating, but... In a five-day course, we spend two days speaking about physics and application to heat theory. And so those are all sort of basics that people told us that we should really pay attention to in school. And and it was usually the thing that we like to do, maybe not the most. <laughs> and now looking back on it, going, yep, sure, listen to that. But that's, you know, math, science, communications, reading, writing. I don't know how much people read anymore, but reading is important because you have to read to understand or else you can't execute. So I hope that's a better yeah. next level. Oh, yeah. That's, okay. that's great. What about someone's major? Is it a deciding factor to get into your profession? In other words, if they haven't studied math or science or, in your case, economics, is mm-hmm. it a deal breaker? It's really not. I think we were speaking a little bit earlier about a lot of 
what goes on in our industry is, well, let me back up by saying it's highly populated by artists. And what that means is sort of the way people think, but it's when they are, it meets science is a perfect world. So I think you can take any bachelor of arts, bachelor of science and stay pretty applicable. I mean, because those are just really general, well-rounded educations. And, and I think business later, you know, and, and I even tell my own kids, you know, get that undergrad, but you're, you're going to go back and get the graduate degree. And, and I think business for me, at least business was already out there, you know, I was already in it. And I think economics is one of those things that people either do or they don't. And I was lucky enough to be able to do and, and I enjoyed accounting. Accounting is important, those kinds of things. But I, I don't think we can really corner any one particular degree other than to say that sometimes with undergrad, you get you get it and then you get out there and find out it's great, but it wasn't a, a great starting place. And we have to find out more of what we want to do. But now there's, believe it or not, there is formal education and coffee now. There is? A degree programs. Yeah. Ernesto Ely from from Italy actually started their very own college for coffee in Italy. And now there are, while I was the president of the SCAA, we started working with the University of California, Davis, as you probably know them because they're so heavily involved in the wine industry. We thought that they would become great partners in coffee and we created a new sensory lexicon. And from there, they were like, hey, we think we want to, we want to, get an education track going for coffee in the States. So there's some exciting times now where you can actually, and I'm not sure where they're at with that. I don't want to get too far ahead of that, but I know that that's being worked on. Okay. And then from an agronomy standpoint, you know, the growing of coffee and the varietals and all the lab work, there's the Borlaug Institute in Texas at the University of Texas or uh, Texas A&M. There's Kansas State University, which I live in Kansas City. So I a couple of hours drive from using their laboratories and they, they do a lot of research too. So I, it really depends on which part of it you want to get into, but the agronomy side is well served in the States and people don't even realize it. They think it's more centralized at origin, but they do some great work here. And then this new education track for coffee professionals is something that I've been pushing for since the eighties. And I'm, I can't wait to see that reach <sighs> fruition because, Oh my gosh, I don't know. Yeah. But it, I, you, I'm sure you probably read like the average age of a barista in Italy is about 50. I mean, no. it's a noble industry, much like being an attorney there. And in that, when when Mr. Ely put that program together, he's like, well, if we're going to treat it like that, you know, we need to back it up. And so bless him for putting this opportunity together. And, you know, all of us wish we could hit the pause button and go over there and go to school now <laughs> to go through it. But for young people, you know, not everybody can jump on a plane, go to Italy. But I think UC Davis will probably do some distance learning and those kinds of things, especially during the times we're in. But but I believe it's in modules, too. So you can take modules and not, you know, have to commit to the whole program. So I'm excited about that education piece. But in the meantime, really just any Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Science probably will get you started. And then as you formalize, there's a lot better opportunities to do you know, once you pick which part of this industry you really want to be, because as a consultant, I don't do all the work. We're divvied up into specialties. And so I'm kind of like the general contractor, if you will. We, people contact us. I make contact with them. We'll talk about what they need. We'll put together a scope of work. We'll, we'll send them a bid. And then I do very little of the work myself. And it's because I'm I learned a long time ago, let the experts be the experts. And I feel like we deliver a better product but because of it. Excellent. So what mm -hmm. about a grad school degree? 
and less so for those coming in at the entry level. More so, Tracy, you alluded to this, maybe a business degree or something in that realm could be useful. But what do you think are the most useful ones to have? You're going to love this, actually. This is the question of the day, and I didn't even tell you. I have been doing this my whole adult life. And Saturday, I did a orientation to begin my own MBA. Really? <laughs> True story. Yeah. I like to lead by example with my kids. And I feel like a lot of what I do has become, uh, you know, our life gets a little bit predictable, let's say. And I feel like you always need to be sharpening the saw. And, I, and I've wanted to do it for a long time. Honestly, I wish I would have started in January if I'd have known we were going to be on lockdown. But so my first class is on my birthday in the second week of August. And it, it's going to be two years of digging in. But I'm looking forward to because, and I don't, I don't recommend waiting as long as I did between your undergrad and your grad degree. But I think going back to our previous question, that undergrad is a great platform and get it in something that you can relate to. And then find out what you want to be. And so I struggled with a master's in international finance. I struggled with, there's a Latin American economics. There's a, you know, a, a lot of paths that I went down. But what I want to know and what I want to take out of it is a young people are shaping demand. And I want to be a part of that group with those young people to help understand how they think. And that's sort of my commitment to staying in front of the industry. And, and there's a lot of pressure on my company, but me in particular, to continue to stay in front of the new trends, if you will. And I think this is a great way to do it. So it's sort of selfishly, I'm going to call information from these group projects that we do. And I don't, it's kind of a relief, to be honest with you, because I don't have to lead everything like I do at work. <laughs> <laughs> I get to be a part of a group and listen to these young people that are shaping these behaviors and, you know, just chime in, but not have to run the show. I'm looking forward to it. So I think the MBA is always the the great standard. That's why I chose it. But the economics I use every day, everything we do, whenever we do proposal, whenever we do a presentation, whatever it is, we always say that we divide things into product, price, people, and production. And so we go in there, we do these reviews for clients, and then it's always put into a, a presentation to tell them where they're at, but it's based on economic modeling. And they, they'll see the graphs and go, oh, my gosh, economics. They'll either gloss over or they'll be highly engaged because they know that it is now no longer art, but it's becoming science. And that's, I think, without saying it to everyone, one of our pluses is that we, we help tie the science to the piece that's art for those business people that are maybe not completely into the business piece or those kinds of things. So I, th- I don't know if I went a long way around the tree to answer your question, but I think it's... <laughs> It's a, there's a lot of spokes to that wheel and really figuring out what you want to do once you get in it, it would be a better answer. But I, I don't. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's all good. And in fact, Tracy, you have underscored yet again, the mindset that I've landed on in terms of helping young people think about their college degree, how to think about it, in particular, how to think about their major. And what I've landed on is this, that instead of thinking of your majors, the tiny house that you're going to be forced to live in for the rest of your life, think of it as the foundation 
of a professional skyscraper that you're going to be building over the course of your life with each new job and each new career adding a new floor in that skyscraper. That's such a great analogy. The building blocks of life. It really is. And if I might digress, I have a 17 year old that's a nationally ranked athlete in the schools or calling to recruiter. And one of the first conversations they said is, well, what do you want to major in? She, at the time she was 15, she said, well, first I want to get my driver's license. <laughs> How would she know? Oh yeah. Yeah. No. So now we're getting, but at the same time, that was such a funny part of, she was like, I have no idea. Dad, what do I want to major in? I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's just it. And it's why I tell young people to just major in something that that interests them. It doesn't even have to be a passion because so many of us don't discover our passions until later. And it's another reason why I say to those young people who've graduated and are no longer interested in whatever they've studied, not to freak out because that's going to happen to them over the course of their life. Now, you just so happened to start out. We're going to get into this in, in the main interview, but in the coffee industry and you've stayed in that industry. But so many of us, myself included, zig and zag in and out of different industries. So just as 75% of college students change their major while they're in school, that's like a Mm -hmm. microcosm of what's going to happen to them when they graduate, because they're going to be exposed to so many different things, so many different people, and their interests are probably going to evolve as they move up, as they move along in their professional journey. So speaking of journeys, what kind of life experiences, Tracy, do you think are most useful for someone starting out in this field? And by life experiences, I'm talking about things like you growing up on a farm or Mm -hmm. somebody studying or speaking another language or maybe starting a small lawn care business when they're in high school. Whatever it is, what do you think are the most valuable life experiences for someone to try to cultivate if they want to get into coffee consulting or the coffee industry? I love that question because I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and I left and, and now I came back and I, and I always said that there was sort of not as much, like I was a dreamer and, and I would dream vividly about travel and things like that. And in the Midwest, a lot of people were just not that comfortable with traveling to the 50 countries that I traveled to. And they were not comfortable because they didn't understand them. And they, they were like, Hey, you need to just stay here. You know, this is safe. And, and I think a willingness to travel was the, not to knock on formal education, but I can't tell you how much I learn every time I get off the plane somewhere else and, and understand people's and what I've learned about culture and how just human behavior, how it works globally. So don't be afraid. And then to do that, you know, you probably in fairness want to, as you mentioned, pick up another language. Don't sit around and be entitled and think that, you know, just because I know English that I can ride this out forever. If you really want to see how the rest of the world operates, pick up another one. I, I'd show Spanish. I have a little bit of Italian, but I also love to go to France and I love to go 
to China and places like that where, and I, I wish I could understand them all. I'm just not capable of being a, a linguist, but pick up a second language, travel every chance you get. I don't care if it's to another city, eventually it will lead to another country. And that those things right there are going to open so many more doors for you. And more importantly, open the way that you think. Oh yeah. I love that. I'm also a, I mean, I am obsessed with travel and have always been. And I cannot tell you how empowering it is to speak other languages. As Tracy said, they are golden keys that unlock countries. They really are. And relationships with people and magical experiences that you will have in your life. And and especially if you're interested in this industry. And we've heard Tracy already mention the importance of origin. And that is the people who are growing, the farmers who are growing the coffee in these countries. And if you speak their language, wow, what a benefit that's going to be for your career. And it helps so much with the trust because you think about these producers, they're trusting you to help them finance their family operation for the whole year. And just the fact that you make the extra effort to understand their language puts you on a whole different level with them when it comes to negotiating and trust and bringing you into their house and having meals with their family and things like that instead of just a transactional tourist that's coming down to to buy their crop and make money off of it. Yes, Absolutely. No doubt about it. Tracy, what is the best part for you of being in this industry? Mm, I think we touched briefly on my history and and I think being a farmer and understanding that go on in farming communities and and farming households and those kinds of things. I think it's one of those, the give back. The, The industry has been really, quite frankly, has been very good to me and my family. And when I left Seattle and Zoka. I wanted to do something that was not being done at the time and in sort of a hybrid, create my own business model and find a way to bring the farmer to the forefront with the end user just as close as possible, which I say we we started that at Zoka by bringing the producers to Seattle and let people come to our shops and meet them and things like that. But I think watching these, I'm on second and third generations of family relationships at in these origins like East Africa and seeing their children born and now negotiating with their children on their behalf. Sometimes their grandparents have passed and their parents are starting to hand it off to the, so watching that is so fulfilling. And then of course my kids always want to know why I was gone so much. And now they're at an age where they love, they, they go with me. <laughs> so now they're starting to meet them and I don't think they're going to work in the family business, but it's like back to my analogy about, travel being so invaluable. And my 17 year old speaks Spanish. She jumps on a plane and she knows people at origin now and those kinds of things. So there's so much full circle about just appreciating other lives and cultures and those kinds of the give back has been great. And it serves you so well. I don't know if I mentioned before, but I briefly was in a, another business where we sold soft drinks and really it was made in the lab. You know, it was everyone loved to drink it, but at the same time, you didn't have this depth where you could look the farmers in the eyes and shake their hands and hug them and those kinds of things. And so, you know, the money takes care of itself. You just do a good job for people. And, and that's the real memories are there, watching them improve their quality or watching them win an auction for the best of so-and-so coffee in the whole country. 
when they came from commodity grade coffee. Those kinds of things are really the measurables for me that make it all worthwhile. Oh, amazing. Amazing. If that isn't a great sales pitch for getting into this industry, I don't know what is. (laughs) So look, Tracy, we know that every career, every industry has sides that we may not love. And you are a founder and a CEO of your own consulting company, but I'm sure there are aspects that are uh, challenging. (laughs) So what is the part of your current job that sucks the most? Well, I think that was going to be something that everyone can relate to because it's it's politics. And as you know, that drives our country right now, very much so. And imagine working with politics in 50 countries and there's not a division of power. There's no two sides a lot of times, you know, there's just one way. And so we do really in-depth projects to try to improve lives of origin. And in fact, our every day we look at our company motto, it's everything we do is to improve lives at origin. And when you really make a lot of progress in a place like Ethiopia, for instance, was a place that everyone was really working hard to bring that producer to the forefront because they made these beautiful coffees and they might only produce, you know, four bags a year for their whole crop, for instance. But the quality was so good the harvesting was all the practices were in place. Everything was great. And then you can have an election and a new president can come in and say, no more of that. Everyone just bring their coffee to the, to the government elevators and basically what we call elevators in America and dump it in the pile. And we'll tell you how much it weighed. And then when we sell it, we'll, we'll pay you what you have coming. Those things get frustrating. There's always something in there that we have to deal with. You know, I've built schools and in Latin America and we've done dedications and, and the idea was there's a shortage of coffee pickers and this way we could have dual income households and, and we've cut the ribbons on these schools. So these kids can not be, I hate to use the term warehouse, but actually learn. So it's not just a homogenous room full of kids doing nothing, but we wanted them to have a track and we've done more since this, but I remember our first one and the local version of the mayor, when it was all finished and we smiled and we took all our pictures and he said, I would appreciate if you never came back here. Wow. <laughs> While you are driving to the car. He's like, you have totally disrupted our local economy by, I'm, I don't understand as an economist, which he didn't bother to ask. I don't understand which part of that I disrupted other than you don't have to outsource producers from Panama to <laughs> pick coffee in Costa Rica. But, you know, those kinds of things have happened in the past. And it's usually just our agenda, of course, not always aligning with other people's agenda, but we, we just... At the end of the day, we want to eliminate those extra links in the value chain. And sometimes people get a little bit upset by that. I mean, they've we get a little hate mail over it from time to time, but but we know it's the right thing to do. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And I want this to be the straightest line between the producer and that person drinking that cup of coffee I can get. Yeah. That's what gets me up every day. I love it. So three final espresso shots. Tracy, Mm -hmm. what is the best career advice you've ever gotten? It was in sailing. Selling coffee was early for me, right, at Proctor. And I remember hearing an adage that was, what customers will do for you, they'll do to you. So don't lead with price. And that's very true. I mean, it's, it's always a matter of price or quality. 
and this is more for not the people looking to get into the business, but after you've gotten into the business, understand that if you build your model around price, you're going to have a lot of turnover because those potential customers are, are probably going to jump from island to island every time the bright, shiny new object comes along. And, and so put a program together that's a true business model and it's built on, you know, we like to say four solid pillars and make sure that it works top to bottom for you and for the customer. So yeah, that's it. What they'll do for you, they'll do to you. And it's behavior. It's predictable behavior. Don't say I didn't warn you guys. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What about movies, Tracy? Movies or shows on Netflix, Amazon or Hulu or books? Do you think accurately depict this profession? A lot of them. And I, I understand a little bit about the production of, you know, it has to have good bones for viewership. And so, like I say, a lot of what we do is redundant and it's not all that interesting. So sometimes I'll see a movie like the politics in Africa were, were really well done. And if you remember Leonardo DiCaprio was in Blood Diamond mm, yeah, uh, about the Beers family and how they couldn't come back to Africa. I mean, I, I remember watching that movie. I'm not kidding. And I was, I felt like I was there again. Like it was that real. And a lot of it was the politics and incredible shooting that they did there because it, I mean, you almost smell the soil. The soils have, everything has a sight and a sound and a smell. And, and one thing about Africa is every, you, you associate, like you wake up there and you go, oh, I'm definitely in Africa. So I felt like I was most engaged in that one. And then sadly, Hotel Rwanda was really well done in the Hotel Lizon, which I've have been known to stay in that actual hotel. Do you remember that with Don Cheadle? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I do remember yeah. it. And I actually had the privilege of interviewing Don Cheadle at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C. when that wow. movie was about to come out. And it is a an amazing movie about the genocide in that country. Speaking of the Holocaust Memorial, they have since that movie was made, they created a genocide memorial in Rwanda. President Kagame did. And I, I don't know that you'll get there anytime soon, but I would say that it's it's a really, without giving everything away, it's an incredibly emotional visit. It took me a day to get through it because I had to go outside and sort of take a breath from time to time. But it was sort of full circle. So people actually would see that movie or read about it in the news or whatever. And then a lot of people would descend upon Rwanda to try to figure out a way to help, you know, everybody wanted to help. And this genocide, this memorial to it, if you will, it was part of President Kagame's plan to help put them back together. Because he said, you know, without tolerance, we'll divide as a nation. And it's happened before. I don't know if you knew that before, but there had been a similar situation probably 17 or so years before the last genocide and sadly it's predictable that it could happen again but he felt like that this museum would be a great tool to help it from happening again and i'll just leave it at that but the hotel rwanda the catalyst for that and then then the the work of president kagami who i've been lucky to spend time with and work with and and i know his heart and he did all that for the right reason but it's it's amazing study and human life and how we should treat each other. But um, so it's interesting that Don there, actually, because he's a circle back and went to the one in Rwanda. What is it about those movies that you think 
depict the coffee profession? Is it just that they give you a sense of the countries where the coffee is produced? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of what we, you know what, it's so funny that you put these questions towards the end because it circles back to the beginning where we were talking about how much you learn about travel. And without travel, I would expect things to be a certain way in each country that I visited. You know, you had that preconceived notion. There's a a lot. Once you get your feet on the ground in that country that you find out it's not exactly the way that you thought it was. And those are the things that really bring it all full, full circle for me. I wrote a chapter in a book that a lady made about Ethiopia and it was about being sort of an entitled America going to Ethiopia and the, for the first time and what I thought I knew about life and, and why these people were such a mess and whatever. And then that was 20 years ago and now I get on a plane and I'm high-fiving the people I'm with about the, just the little steps of progress every time we leave there. Anyway, I'll, I'll I digress if you let me go too far on that one, but that's, I'm great. Grateful that you asked the question where you asked it, because it does bring us back to if you travel, you'll understand those. The essence of the movie, it doesn't even have to be about coffee, because a lot of times coffee is just really not that exciting to make a movie out of. So you watch it with good intent and you get a little disappointed because it gets a little bit off track because of it's just not exciting viewing. But there's some good documentaries from time to time. And I think the one thing is that they they're good at at their time and then. They just need to stay up to date. You know, you can go on YouTube and watch a hundred of them, but, but things have changed like the way coffee's picked and how they choose color and how pickers get paid based on what they used to do is just go strip a whole section like we do in agronomy here in the States. And now they go through and they only pick the, the ripest red cherries and then they go back and pick it a few days later, which is a huge challenge. But anyway, there, a lot of that stuff goes into to answering your question. I think it's one of those things that you'll see a movie and go, oh my gosh, now this actually is the closest I've ever seen. So unfortunately, I only named two and there's a lot of good books out there, but they're a little bit dated too. I, I don't know the last one I've read about real coffee life. A good show, a buddy of mine that has a coffee company in Philadelphia did one on a, one of the networks where they followed him around for a while. And I can't remember the name of the show, but he really did a good job of capturing the essence of it. But even he'll tell you that they had to hot rod it a little bit to make it a little more interesting to viewers. Okay. <laughs> well, fair enough. Thank you so much for clarifying all of that. You bet. Final espresso shot. Mm. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about the coffee industry? Well, it's new. To be honest with you, the industry as we know it now, as I alluded to in the last answer, is new. It's not, you know, the commercial grade folders that I started selling. There's so many more moving parts to it now. You know, it used to all be traded on a, at a trading desk, if you will. And now people are boots on the ground and there so much travel goes into origin and eliminating the bloated parts of the business model. And and still the exploitation exists, but at the same time, we're making great strides in it. And I think creating the common language with the scoring benchmarking systems and and an education track to help understand those benchmarking systems have put us in a position to assess it like, and, and I'm going to use wine as an analogy because people know that they can go to the store and they can read the tag on a bottle of wine and, and it has a score and it has a, a description. We do that. And, there, and it's a great benefit for 
everyone involved in the value chain because it helps the producer understand how their wine is. It helps the person, the purchaser understand how the wine is. We've never had that before. It used to be just you open the red can and the commercials were all about how it smelled when you open the can. And, and now there's so much more that goes into it. So I think everyone's education, including the end users, ha- have come miles and miles. And I think it's a growing profession. It's a great profession for young people to take a look at if they really feel it, that that is their potential passion. It's not like you haven't missed the bus on this one by any means. And I w- I'll tell you, statistically, and I'll just leave this with you, 70% of the consumption of coffee in the next 20 years will be cold because the 15 to 34s are, are making that change. So a lot, most of what we know about coffee is based on hot coffee. This is going to turn the industry upside down. So if you think this is what you want to do, now you know what you don't know. It's <laughs> a great time to do. <laughs> What a perfect note to end on. And considering what you said earlier about how many of the people who get into this industry are musicians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Tracy, I want to thank you so much, my fellow Java junkie, for joining me and sharing just so much wisdom with me and the T4C community. I just think what you do is super cool. I'm very envious of the amount of travel that you get to do. I know you're not doing much at all right now during the coronavirus, but hopefully pretty soon you'll be back on a plane giving a hug to the next generation of coffee grower. We think maybe September for Colombia and Guatemala, if everything goes well, depending on the bounce back, but that'll be our earliest. So the year could be a write-off, but we're making it work and keeping people safe. We're still making progress. So I'm with you though. It does get a little rough to be sticking around the house when you are used to going as much as, as I am. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.